This week, two small groups of people have gathered in secret to make plans. These two groups are enemies of each other. And each group is in the same city plotting the other's demise. Each side is engaged in this conspiracy. A secret plan to subvert and defeat the plans of the other side. Of course, the two groups I'm talking about here are the NFL teams, <laughs> known as the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. Who, did, who else did you think I was speaking about? Think about it. They are two small groups of people, relatively speaking, and they're conspiring together, together or against each other to try to win the Super Bowl tonight. They're watching tape on the other team, thinking we can attack their coverage this way or we can use this trick play to try to gain an advantage. We don't see the planning. That all happens in secret. That's what conspiracies are. They're plans made in secret among groups of people. We don't see this planning. We don't see the conspiracy itself. What we see if we watch the game tonight is the result of that conspiracy. The conspiracy itself happens in secret. It happens behind closed doors. What you and I see is the execution of those plans. The actions that have been planned in secret, played out in the open. In a similar way, the Bible tells us that there is a conspiracy going on. It's a conspiracy of the human race against God. The Bible tells us this again and again, that humanity is conspiring and has conspired against the living God in the secret places of our hearts and in private discussions among ourselves. The human race is plotting against the Lord. It's plotting against God. It's conspiring against His plans for us. The things that happen on earth, the things people do, the things people say, are the execution of those conspiracy plans in real time. The working out of the secret intentions of the heart, the secret plans made in private, are worked out in the things that people do and the things people say, in the everyday details of their life. The Bible is clear about this that people conspire to subvert the plans of God. Throughout the Bible, we see that God has a plan for humanity. Sometime that, sometimes that plan is expressed in His laws, in His wills. Thou shalt do such and so. Are the plans of God. Delivered to us is His revelation, for which we are responsible for our obedience or disobedience. The Bible also says there are plans of God that are prophesied about, that things that God will do, whether we like it or not, whether we obey or not, that are going to happen in this world. God has a plan for this world, and the Bible reveals much of what it is. But the Bible says in the quiet moments of the human heart and in the quiet discussions among people that we are planning to try to subvert the plans of God, either through our disobedience to his revealed will, or in our intention not to allow his revealed will to come to pass 
in this world. Our passage for today is Luke chapter 21, verses 37 through chapter 22, verse 23. And right before this passage, right before the passage I read to you a moment ago, right before the passage we're going to dig into and study together this morning, Jesus has talked about the coming plans of God. In answer to the disciples' questions, he has foretold a coming destruction for Jerusalem, a setting aside of Israel as a nation so that God can send the gospel message forth into the Gentile nations where people from all over the world will be gathered into his family and prepared to be part of his kingdom by faith. And then the Bible says the Son of Man will come again and he will judge the world and establish his kingdom. This is the will of God. This is the plan of God. Jesus has just revealed in outlined form in the sections we looked at last Sunday and the Sunday before that what the plans of God are. Now as we come to the passage this morning that we're going to look at together, we see the subversive conspiracy of humanity against this. We see how people come together in private and make plans to try to keep the plans of God from becoming a reality in this world. The message Jesus had in the preceding section of Luke chapter 21 was a harsh message. It was one that a lot of people didn't like to hear. And so they, in response to that message, and in response generally to the popularity of Jesus, they make plans to try to subvert the plans of God. But despite the tendency of humanity and the constant working of humanity to try to subvert the plans of God, the Bible teaches this, that although people conspire to subvert the plans of God, God is sovereign and is working to accomplish His plan. That's the banner that stands over this entire passage, as we'll see. We'll see the people working their conspiracy against Jesus and against the plans of God. And yet in their conspiracy, we'll see the overarching plan of God revealed and how God is working in this world to make it happen. Now, I've used a word in this sentence, sovereign. And it's an important word in the understanding of the Christian faith and the understanding of the person of God. Sovereign is a, world that we don't, is a word that we don't use a lot in America because we don't have a king. But in past times and in other nations where there is a monarch of some sort, the idea of sovereignty is more familiar. When we say someone is sovereign, we are saying that person has ultimate rule, ultimate control, ultimate command. It's a word of kingliness. And when I say that God is sovereign, what I am referring to are the kingly plans of God. But the outworking of God's sovereignty in the Bible is often seen not in the miracles that God does, but rather in things that look like coincidences, but actually play out to fulfill the plans of God. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, that's usually what we're talking about. We're talking about the strange things that happen in this world that are unexpected by us and that don't involve any miracles, and yet somehow they work the plan of God so that it happens. This is the sovereignty of God. 
Despite the fact that humanity plans and conspires against God to try to derail his plans, the Bible says God is sovereign and is working to accomplish his plans. Let's look at our passage again together, and let's start to see how this unfolds in the passage. At the end of chapter 21, verse 37, the Bible says, Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. Now we need to remember what's going on in the life of Jesus at this point. Christ has, a few days prior to this passage, entered Jerusalem. And he entered Jerusalem presenting himself as king. You remember he was riding on a colt, just in the way biblical prophecy said that the Messiah, the king, would come. And people were throwing palm branches on the ground. That's why it's called Palm Sunday. And they were putting their cloaks on the ground. And they were saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, and he arrived for the feast that we're going to read about today, the Feast of Passover. All people from all over Israel were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And as Christ arrived, he was greeted as a king. And Jesus immediately pronounced a curse on the city of Jerusalem and said, bad things are coming for you. But he began to act like a king. He, he threw out the, the money changers in the temple And he began teaching in the temple. And that's where we find him today. When it says in verse 37, every day Jesus was teaching at the temple. And each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. It is telling us what the daily schedule of Jesus was during this last week of his life before his crucifixion, the Passion Week we call it. Jesus went to the temple. He spent all day teaching there. Any breaks he took were minimal. And then at the end of the day, as the sun was going down, he and his disciples would decamp to what is called the Mount of Olives. It's a hill just outside of Jerusalem and has sweeping views of the city. And we don't know if he stayed outdoors or if he stayed with his friends, maybe Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who lived in a town on the Mount of Olives. We don't know where Jesus was staying. We we just know that he spent the night on the Mount of Olives and he spent the day teaching in the temple. Now, the next verse, verse 38, tells us, and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. This tells us that people were lining up before Christ arrived. They, they, it's like back when, you know, when like the iPhone came out and people wanted to get the first one and they would like kind of camp out in front of the Apple store to get them. This is what people were doing at the temple. They were camping out. They were getting the, as early as they could to get in line, you know, for the doorbuster teaching of Jesus. And, of course, his disciples were with him everywhere, and a lot of people probably followed him to wherever he was staying. And so what we are to understand in this scene is that Jesus was really not alone, hardly at all, during this time. People were looking for him. People were following him around. Everywhere he went, there were crowds of people that went with him. And that meant the people who were threatened by Jesus. We're going to meet them in a minute. But these are the priests who ran the temple and had... And they they lost money when Jesus threw out the money changers and the people selling animals. They lost money. So they were mad at Jesus. And the teachers of the law, they were mad at Jesus too because he had stumped them when they tried to bring him questions. And so we've got these groups of people that don't like Jesus at all. They would really like to get rid of him, but they can't because there are people with him all the time. And if they, we'll see in a minute, if they tried to nab Jesus on his way to the temple or from the temple... There would be 
a massive rush of people who would try to prevent that from happening. All right, and so this is setting the table for the conspiracy that is about to follow. And as we come to chapter 22, verse 1, we read these words. Now, the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. This was one of the high holy days in Israel. It was a day when people remembered the final plague of the book of Exodus. Remember the ten plagues? The final plague was the plague of the firstborn, in which God killed the firstborn child throughout Egypt of everyone who didn't have blood over, their, over the door and the posts of their home. And God commanded his people to, to kill a lamb and put that blood over the posts of their home and to celebrate by eating unleavened bread and that lamb meat and to be ready to exit because the exodus was coming. This event where God delivered his people miraculously through the Passover was celebrated again and again and again by observant Jews every year. And Jerusalem swelled with people from all over Israel to celebrate this high holy day. And so the day is coming very near, chapter 22, verse 1 tells us. And here we see the conspiracy in verse 2. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Now this description of the fear of the people is different from the one, I think, that comes later. The fear of the people that, that is being described in verse 2 here is fear of the growing popularity of Jesus. The fear that these people have is that their power is diminishing and Jesus' power is increasing. And if this keeps happening, they are going to find themselves more and more marginalized in the community of Israel. Their source of wealth is going to dry up and it's going to be bad days for them. And so when the Bible says in verse 2 that they were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus because they were afraid of the people, this is what's going on. Now, through all of this, God has been protecting Jesus. God has been watching over our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that they can't find him in an alone moment or when there's just a one or two people around to try to nab him shows the, the sovereignty of God over the life of Christ. There were people who wanted to take Jesus out, but they could never find a private enough moment to do it. And so this is where the conspiracy developed. In verse 3 it says, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And we know a few things about Judas from other passages of Scripture. The Gospel according to John tells us that Judas was a greedy person tells us that he was the treasurer of the 12 disciples, and he's not the kind of treasurer you want to have, because John tells us that he was stealing from the bag. And so Judas's greed is going to enter the picture in a moment. It's going to be used by Satan. But I think there's more to it than just his greed. I think Judas is quite disillusioned with Jesus at this moment. When he signed up to be one of the twelve, when he agreed to follow Jesus when Jesus commanded him to, he had visions of Christ coming to Jerusalem as a king as he did in the triumphal entry, and then deposing the Romans, defeating the Romans, and then ruling over Israel as king of Israel in an independent state. 
This is the vision that Judas had. It's really the vision that all the disciples of Jesus had. And over the course of the three years that they followed Jesus, Jesus tried to disabuse them of this notion. He tried to tell them, the kingdom that you're expecting is not coming right away. It is coming, but not until the Son of Man comes again. And Jesus had just preached all of this right before this incident. Jesus had just told Judas and the Twelve that bad days are coming for Jerusalem and that the Son of Man is going to leave and the gospel is going to go out in the Gentiles and then someday in the future, Christ is going to return. And I think Judas is disillusioned by this. Remember, Jesus also foretold persecution for the disciples, and I don't think that was a good word for Judas at all. And so what happens when people get disillusioned? They move to the other side, right? They defect. They say, I'll become a spy. I'll provide you with information. And you you give me the benefit of that, all right? This is what Judas has decided to do. Verse 4 says, And Judas went to the chief priests, and officers of the temple guard, the chief priests we've already been exposed to, they're the guys who control the temple. They're priests, so they do priestly functions, but they're really in an administrative and a leadership role. They tell the other priests what to do. They're the ones who benefited from the selling of animals and the exchanging of money and all of this. Judas goes to them and, verse 4, to the officers of the temple guard. Did you know that the temple had security people? It did. It had armed guards. And these armed guards were going to be needed to take Jesus into custody. This is why Judas goes to them. And they conspire together. And the essence of this conspiracy... See, I always wondered why Judas had to betray Jesus with a kiss. And the answer is because they couldn't figure out how to get Jesus alone. That was what's going on. Judas was going to provide them a private way to take Jesus away, and it was going to be dark. And so the person he kissed, they would know that's the guy to arrest. All right, so we'll come to that part later in in a... Sunday in the future. But the conspiracy in the part that Judas was going to deliver was a private moment where Jesus could be taken by these temple guards without a riot ensuing. And so verse 4 goes on to say, Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money, the thing that motivated Judas more than anything else. Instead of being persecuted with the apostles as Jesus foretold, Judas thought, well, I can create a a nest egg for myself here financially and get out from under the persecution that Jesus has foretold. Verse 6 says he consented. That means they offered him a price and he said, yes, I will do it for that price. We know from other passages of scriptures it was 30 pieces of silver. But verse 6 goes on and, and gives us the key point and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. That's the value add for for Judas. He would lead these temple guards to a private place where Jesus could be taken without causing a riot among the people. This is the conspiracy. Now, as I said, people had been looking to try to take Jesus out for a while. We've read this over and over again in our study of the book of Luke over the last four years. And we've seen that people have been looking for a way to get Jesus. And yet in God's sovereignty, they they never have touched him. Jesus has been delivered. We know from other scriptures again and again when people wanted to take him. And the reason for that is he was protected by the sovereign plan of God. Jesus would not be delivered over into the hands of men until God's plan called for it, because God is sovereign. 
But there's more to the sovereignty of God here in this passage. Verse 7 tells us part of the incredible provision that God makes in his sovereignty so that his plan can be done in this world. Verse 7 says, Then the day came, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now remember that Jerusalem is swollen with people from all over Israel now. And an observant Jew is going to observe the Passover feast. It was critical to obedience in their faith. Originally, after the tabernacle had been set up and then later the temple succeeded it, people wanted to do this feasting in the temple area, but of course, there were way too many Israelites for everyone to be able to observe the feast in the temple. So eventually it became acceptable to do it in Jerusalem. And so this is why people would come. It didn't have to be done that way. It was a custom. It was a way of observing the Passover in a way that was especially meaningful. Now, if you've ever been in a situation where a large number of people have swarmed into a one particular place, you know how hard it can be to get a table at a restaurant or to get a hotel room. I remember one time I was driving to Florida, and I decided to drive as far as I could during one day and then find a hotel somewhere to spend the night. I didn't realize that it was spring break week, and so every hotel I stopped at was booked up for the night, okay? This kind of thing was happening in, the, in Jerusalem at the time where things are going on. Finding a place where 12 men and Jesus could observe the Passover together was a tall order. And so the passage tells us, continuing in verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go make preparations for, eat, for us to eat the Passover. Sounds easy, but it wasn't. And so Peter and John turn to Jesus and say, where? Verse 9, where do you want us to prepare for it? Where are we going to find a room at this late hour to have a meal where 13 people can all sit together and observe this feast? It's a very tall order in a city swollen with people. So Jesus says this, In verse 10, he replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. And then verse 13 says, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. Amazing. It's almost as if Christ knew in advance what would happen. That if they went into the city from the Mount of Olives, probably this happened early in the morning on the day that the feast was to be observed, that they would find a servant who was carrying a jar of water. And this guy would stand out because most of the time women were the ones who bore the water, not always, but usually in their culture and in their customs. And so a man carrying a jar like this would be, you know, somewhat unusual. Jesus said, a man's going to meet you, and all you got to do is follow him, just surveil him, just see where he goes, okay? And when he goes, taking this jar of water back to the house where he is a servant, talk to the owner. Tell the owner, the teacher, and you don't have to say Jesus, you don't have to call him the Son of Man, he'll know. 
The teacher says, where can my disciples and I have the Passover? He'll show you a large room upstairs. And understand in, in uh, Israel's, um, uh, the way that houses were designed and constructed, the second floor was used by everyone. Often they were, these homes were just one story, but the second floor was almost like a porch. And in the evening, as uh, the, the cool of the day, the, the kind of the most pleasant part of the day out in the desert happened, people would go and there were stairs outside of the building. You would go outside of the building upstairs and you would enjoy, um, you know, sitting out in the, in, the, in the evening. But some homes had a second story. Some homes had two floors and the second floor was often a guest room. That's what's happening in this home. This home was owned by a wealthy man. We know because he had servants and because he had a two-story house. Jesus says, when you find this servant, follow him to the house. Talk to the owner of the house. He'll take you upstairs and you'll see all the tables and all of the benches we need to have a private moment alone to observe the Passover meal. The disciples followed the instructions of Jesus and everything he said happened exactly the way he said it. Why? Because God is sovereign. And God's plan was being worked out in the events of Jesus' life, moving him toward the ultimate will of God for him. And what we see in this passage, that God is sovereign and is working to accomplish his, pass, his plans, first of all, we see that God sovereignly protects and provides whatever is necessary to accomplish his plans. God protected Jesus right up until his will called for Jesus to be betrayed by Judas. And God provide for, provided for Jesus and his disciples. They made no reservations on one of the busiest days in Jerusalem ever. And this wealthy man just happened in the providence of God to have a large room with all the furniture they needed ready to go so that they could observe the Passover meal together. In the protection of Christ and the provision for Christ and his disciples, we see the sovereign working of God. That these things that look like coincidences, you see a guy with a jar, you follow him, you ask the owner of the house, and he just happens to have the perfect room ready. In all of this, God was working his plans behind the scenes because he is sovereign and he sovereignly protects and provides whatever is necessary to accomplish his plans. But there's more. Because Judas is going to continue his conspiracy against Christ. He's going to keep trying to subvert the plan of God, even though he doesn't really understand the plan of God at all. And that means Jesus is going to face moments of jeopardy. Jesus is going to face difficulties. Jesus is going to end up dying. Something that none of the apostles would have put in their plan for Jesus' life. And yet what happens next is Jesus takes the Passover feast and infuses it with its genuine and its true meaning, its fulfillment in him. We continue to see the sovereign working of God. Let's look at the passage again in verse 14. It says, when the hour came, so the time has come finally to observe the Passover meal. Peter and John have gone to the temple and had the lamb slain there, which you had to do, and then they brought the the meat back and prepared it. They baked that unleavened bread, which is like crackers, okay? It's not soft, it's hard, it's breakable. And that's because leaven in the Bible usually almost always refers to sin. And so 
This was to show that, uh, that this is a sinless situation, as, as, as we're going to find out in a moment. All of this is ready, and the wine, which was also critical. All of it's ready. So the hour has come, in verse 14. And then, then the scripture says, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. Now remember, they didn't sit in chairs like you're sitting in chairs in the moment when they had a big, like a formal meal. They laid on benches on their sides and ate. And I, as I've told you many times, I could not eat like this. I can barely sit at a table and eat without dropping food into my chest or my lap. There's no way I could do it lying down, but that's what they did. Somehow or other, they were able to eat food and drink wine laying on their sides like this. All right? And so the Bible says they were there reclining at the table. Verse 15 says, Then he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now the words before I suffer are foreshadowing the coming death of Christ. The disciples are unprepared for this. Jesus has been telling them, I'm going to be you know, over and over again. I could take you through Luke and show you all the places where Jesus told them that his death is coming, but they missed it. And here again, he refers to it. He refers to his suffering that is coming. And yet he says, before we suffer, we celebrate. He says, I've been looking forward to this for so long. This last moment that we get together, this last private moment that we have, I've been looking for it for a long time, Jesus says. I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And why? Well, verse 16 tells us why. He says, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, the kingdom of God that I told you about is coming but it's not coming yet, and it's not coming for a while. And this is the last meal I'm going to eat. This is the last time I'm going to celebrate in this way with you before that kingdom comes and before the feast day is coming. This is why Jesus was looking forward to it. It's really the last private moment that he would have with his disciples before his death. Then in verse 17, it says, After taking the cup, he said, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. But did you notice that the cup is mentioned twice here in this account of the Lord's Supper? Verse 17 says, After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. Now drop down to verse 20. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. This is unusual in the um, tellings of what we now call the Lord's Supper in Jesus' observance of that final Passover meal. And it's curious that the cup is mentioned twice until you dig into the way that the Passover is celebrated. And what you'll find out is that there are actually four cups in the Passover meal. The fourth one, we're not so sure, had been observed at the time of Christ. It probably came later after, afterwards. But there were ceremonies around this drinking of wine that accompanied the Passover meal. The first cup was the one where the, uh, the, the people gathered at the Passover table would give thanks for the day. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the first cup. And when it says he is giving thanks, he is following this Jewish ritual of giving thanks for the day, the day of the Passover. And so Jesus distributes this cup as a good host would for the Passover. In verse 17, it says, After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus here doesn't talk about this being his blood or um, symbolizing his blood, because this is the first cup of the meal. It was the third cup of the meal where Jesus said, This is my blood. All right, that's the one that, where Jesus used the, the wine as the symbol of his life poured out. But 
Let's continue reading. In verse 19, it says, And he took bread. This is the unleavened bread, the bread that was prepared without any yeast in it. So it was like a cracker. And again, leaven symbolized sin in the Bible. So unleavened bread is to emphasize its holiness, its purity, its separation from sin. Verse 19 says, He took this unleavened bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. A strange thing to say for someone who has not died. Do this in remembrance of me. And then we find the the symbolism of the cup. Verse 20, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant represented by my blood or in my blood. It's the new deal God is making with his people where he's going to give you a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, where his spirit is going to be poured out on you. All this was prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus Jesus says it's coming through my blood and this cup symbolizes it. This is the new cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. What is Jesus saying? In verse 19, when he says, This is my body given for you, and when in verse 20, when he says, This is this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He is foretelling his death, which is just about to happen within a few hours of this moment. Although Christ loved the celebration that he was having with his apostles at this moment, where they took the Passover meal together in fellowship. Jesus was also looking ahead because he knew the plan of God. And the plan of God was not for him to enjoy this meal and then set up the kingdom and raise and reign as the king. Not yet. First God's will for him was to die as the sacrifice for his people. Just as the lamb slain on the Passover, in a sense, was a sacrifice substituting for the firstborn. Jesus says, my body is going to be broken for you. My blood is going to be poured out for you. I am going to take the wrath of God in myself. And all of this is part of the sovereign working of God. The reason Jesus gave this memorial this ordinance to the church the reason why he took these passover elements and infused them with their proper meaning but with new meaning to the disciples was to show them and us the centrality of his suffering to the plan of god for their redemption no suffering savior means no salvation for the people of god And so while God's enemies conspired against him, thinking they were going to derail his plan, Jesus was foretelling his coming death because to him it was all part of the plan of God. God is sovereign and he is working to accomplish his plans. He sovereignly protected his son and provided for him what was necessary to accomplish his plan. And then he gave his son according to his plans to redeem people for his kingdom. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, in a few hours, I will be hung on a... Without saying in so many words, he's alluding, using these symbols to his coming death. And he's saying, I'm doing this for you. My body is going to be broken for you. My blood will be poured out for you in order to redeem you from your sins and to qualify you for the kingdom of God by his grace and by his mercy. Jesus used the meal to show that his death was not going to be an accident. See, the death of Christ was not plan B. 
It was not the best thing that could happen once plan A failed. It was plan A, and it was the only plan there was. There was no plan B. In the sovereign working of God, Jesus came to die as the Passover lamb so that God's people could be redeemed from their sins. And Jesus foretold this all through the Passover meal so that the disciples would know and we would know that Christ had failed the plan of God by dying on the cross. Instead, he fulfilled the plan of God. He was doing exactly what God wanted him to because God is sovereign and he is working to accomplish his plan. But at the end of our passage for this morning, we see where the conspiracy of the enemies of God begin to intersect with the sovereign will of God. Because notice, after Jesus gives these symbols, his body and his blood, in verse 21 he says, But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. See, Judas and the chief priests and the temple guards, they thought they were working to subvert the plan of Jesus. Their intention was to take Jesus away and make sure he was killed by engineering an unjust trial against him. And so then he'll be out of the picture and we can go back to being in control of the temple and in control of the worship and we'll have the seat of authority again and the money train will start rolling again and all things will be good. Once Jesus is out of the way... Our plans will be back in motion again. But what they didn't realize was that it was within the sovereign will of God for Jesus to be betrayed. Jesus foretells this in verse 22 when it says, or verse 21, when it says, the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine at the table. He wasn't fooled. He wasn't surprised by the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. He knew that it was part of the sovereign will of God. How do I know that? Look at verse 22. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. Who made this decree? God the Sovereign One. Jesus says, I will follow along in the plan of God. But notice, even though it was the plan of God for Judas to betray Jesus, Judas is not off the hook because verse 22, Two continues to go and go on and say, but woe to that man who betrays him. The word woe is a word that's used in the Bible to describe an intense expression of grief and sadness. It's what happens to people when the very worst thing possible happens to them. And in spirituality, the worst thing that can happen to someone is to be accursed from God and from his blessings. When Jesus pronounces a woe on the one who betrays him in verse 22, he is saying, you are going to face the justice of God for what you did. Yes, Judas's plans were part of the overall sovereign will of God for the life of Jesus. They were necessary for God's plan to take place. But because Satan was responding to the temptations of the devil, as we saw back in verse 3 where it says Satan entered him, and because he was following his desire for money, Judas was responsible for the decisions that he made. God in his sovereignty let 
Judas go his own way. And the way he went followed the route of his own depravity. What else does God do in his sovereignty? God sovereignly uses the conspiracies of others to accomplish his plan. This is the amazing sovereign will of God. Even people who are his enemies, who are trying their best to derail everything God wants to do, God has included that all in part of his plan. Judas's betrayal was part of the plan of God, even though he was following the promptings of the devil and he was doing it for his own greed. Jesus knew it was happening because it was part of the plan of God. In our world, even though there are people who hold positions of influence in entertainment, in government, in education, in any realm of leadership you can think of, who together are conspiring against the revealed will of God and against the coming of kingdom of God. Their conspiracy will not derail the kingdom of God. It's all part of the plan of God because God is sovereign over all things. This is what this passage reveals to us. God sovereignly uses the conspiracies of others to accomplish his plans. He knows what people have conspired to do against him. As we saw in verse 22 when he said, the hand of the one who will betray me is here at the table. But he uses the attacks of his enemies to accomplish his plans and holds them accountable for the free, sinful decisions that they made. And so the point to take away from this passage should be an encouraging one. It's a dark moment, or it begins a dark time in the life of Jesus. But knowing the full plan of God, it should be an encouraging moment for us. Because it teaches us and shows us this, that although people privately conspire against him, God is sovereignly accomplishing his plans. This is what this incident in the life of Christ reveals to us. In verse 23, we see something interesting. It says, they began, this is the disciples, to question among themselves, which of them it might be who would do this. The disciples are wondering, which of us is actually going to be the one who betrays Jesus? They had no idea that someone had conspired with his enemies to betray him. And they wonder which one of them it could be. And what this reminds us is something that's really important to remember, and that is this, any one of us could have betrayed Jesus because we all have hearts that conspire against God. We think of Judas as being someone who is especially evil. And it is true that he opened himself to the influence of Satan and was allowed to follow the dictates of Satan who used his own greed to accomplish Satan's ends. But the truth of the matter is, all of us have a heart of depravity. Within each of us exists the ability to reject God, to refuse God's will, to betray the Lord until he redeems us from our sins. Any one of us could have been the one that betrays him. We also see in this passage that God's plan moves toward accomplishment through, not in spite of the conspiracies of others. People conspire against God, but they can never derail his plans because God is sovereign. And so the takeaway for us is this. So trust the sovereign Lord, no matter what happens in and around your life. See, we're living in that day between the first coming of Christ and the return of the Son of Man to this world. 
We've been part of those who have been swept into the kingdom, our membership in the kingdom, by faith in Jesus Christ as the gospel has gone out to the Gentile world. And yet, we're still tempted to wonder if God's plan is going according to plan here. We see the conspiracies of people. and We fear an environment that is more and more hostile to our faith, more and more hostile to what God's word has revealed. We see around the world in other countries brothers and sisters in Christ who are actively being persecuted for their faith. And if we lose sight of the fact that God is sovereign over all of this and that He has outlined exactly how it's going to go down and that persecution is not a divergence from the plan, even though they're trying to attack the plan of God, but within the sovereign will, it's part of the plan of God. It's easy for us, if we don't see the plan of God at work, it's easy for us to become disillusioned. This will happen to the disciples. They will become very disillusioned with the whole thing once, Jesus, once Judas betrays Jesus and he is arrested. The message for us to take away from this then is not to be disillusioned by the plans of men against God, by the conspiracies of men against God, by the seeming successes of God's enemies against his word and against his plan. Instead, we need to trust the sovereign Lord no matter what happens in and around your life. Don't let delays in the coming of the kingdom of God or false prophecies, which we talked about in the last couple of weeks, about the kingdom of God that don't come true. Don't let them shake your faith. Trust in the sovereign plans of God. But also this, don't let your sinful heart subvert you from following Christ faithfully and obediently. Remember at the end of Jesus' teaching about the end times events, he said, be careful your heart will be weighed down and you'll be tempted to live in this world like everyone else. If we lose sight of the sovereign plan of God, if we lose faith in the fact that God is a king and he has a plan and that he is working his plan, it will be very easy for us to be tempted, to be moved away from following Christ faithfully instead of following him obediently with our lives. So we need to remember to trust in the sovereign Lord no matter what happens to us, no matter what happens around us. God is sovereign and he is working his plan in this world. Although people privately conspire against him, God is sovereignly accomplishing his plans. So put your faith in him and don't worry about everything else that is happening.